You do not want to miss this episode, as we're joined by Paul Vaughn, president of Personhood Tennessee, who conveys a stunning encounter right here in Middle Tennessee with the weaponization of government against the citizen, where FBI agents abuse the FACE Act in an effort to intimidate Christians, indeed all Americans, from their constitutional and God-given right to peacefully protest against a government that has clearly exceeded its authority. My name is Kevin Kukaji, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. Oh, man. Oh, I know this one. Oh, I certainly heard this song. I, w- I wouldn't say it's like something I, I jam to, you know, in, in, my, in my truck. Yeah. Is this a... Uh, oh, hang on. Is this uh, New Boys? Yeah. Okay, all right. Woo! All boy, right. I, boy, I'm glad I didn't miss that one. <laughs> yeah, you know why? Yeah, so... um. That, I think that's enough. That would have gotten straight back to the guy. Yeah, you would have you would have gotten the daggers from me oh. too. I think I have a. Um, there, there's two reasons I'm starting with this. I was always now think, that one's old, kind of old school, isn't it? Uh, three three decades. Yeah, 1992, yeah. 91. With well, some early newsboys. But it, it's so tied to me and to my family, right? I was um, young lawyer who moved to Nashville straight out of law school in 1992. And the Newsboys had been in America for five years at that point and had struggled to survive and and really worked hard. But this was not ashamed was their first radio hit. And it really finally established them and gave them some credibility. So they had a need for a an attorney and um, they had a little bit of a budget for it finally after eating, you know, living hand to mouth. <laughs> I, need, I, needed a cl- I needed a client, and uh, here we are 30 years later, three decades of the—it's it's the longest-serving client I've had continuously, and I'm incredibly grateful to God for the timing of that. And, um, and they're good friends, too, and, and so there's more than just business. But the reason I chose that song today is because of our guest, Gary, which I'll let you introduce, who certainly, as our audience hears, is not ashamed of the gospel— uh, so much so that he's paying the ultimate price in temporal terms. And so we're going to let him tell his story and hopefully encourage our audience to lend whatever support they can, both in terms of prayer and political support and perhaps even financial as necessary. Yeah, you know, well, ho- hopefully not the, the full ultimate price. Uh, no, yet. <laughs> I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> we're not, he's, he's not going that far Sorry, down the I road didn't, yet. I didn't mean but, to quote like but maybe, but maybe they're coming, you know. I mean, they're coming <laughs> for all of us, it seems like, right, at some point. Uh, well, we have with us today, and, and I'm excited to have him on the show, uh, Mr. Paul Vaughn, uh, resident here of Hickman County, uh, I believe the president of Personhood, Tennessee, and what we, you know, so welcome, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Appreciate having me here. And I think, I think the timing, you know, you're gonna you're gonna educate us today, uh, because I think the timing is great, because some might know that this week Congressman Chip Roy out of Texas filed a bill to repeal the Face Act, and so I, I want to get in a little bit to the Face Act. Um, you know, this was all over the news, so I would imagine. There are folks in Tennessee listening to our show that would that would recognize the fact that there were eleven people, I believe. That's right. Uh, eleven people that were indicted. Uh, or were 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 all eleven arrested by the FBI? No, no. You you were though. I was, and uh, I believe only one other yeah. were arrested. Everybody else got a uh, you know notice to appear. Yeah. Kind of thing. So you and you were arrested for your ministry that was taking place uh, at an abortion clinic. That's that's what right. you've done for quite some time. Correct. Sidewalk counseling, all those sorts of things. Yep. Since the uh, newsboys were around, actually, <laughs> yeah. early in the nineties. Yeah, they, uh, they've not so. they've not paid the ultimate price yet either. <laughs> no. uh, not <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. By the way, as a kind of setting the table, right? We should let our audience know, for those who don't, what the FACE Act is, it, because it was instituted, it, it was passed in 1994 under Bill Clinton. Right. And um, what does that acronym stand for? Yeah, so FACE is the Freedom of Access Clinic Entrances Act. 
Yeah, clinics meaning abortion um, clinics, right? Correct, yes. Re- reproductive health care clinics. Yeah, that's what it is. Can, <laughs> can we redefine the terms? Yeah. yeah new so, words. So 1994, <laughs> and now it's being used as not a shield, but a sword, right, to go correct. after mainly pro-lifers, because I've not seen this used, for example, against someone from BLM who's acting violently against churches or any similar, right? No, that's right. And it, listen, I have here, I brought, I brought you guys a copy of uh, a little track I found from the 90s, uh, early 93. It says, Christians are about to be put in federal prison. What are you going to do to stop it? Wow. And this was a rally for the churches in Texas uh, in the DFW area around the uh, coming passage and ultimate passage of the face bill. So this is this is even more exciting to me. I did not know the year of that, that 93. Wow. And, and that's when I met the newsboys. Well, I met them late 92. And this whole right. song was out at that time. So the, the timing is even more providential about how we connect these dots. So thank you for that. But yeah. this pamphlet, though, about... Christians going to federal prison, the impetus of the pamphlet was the, at the time, the pending passage of the FACE Act? Correct, yeah. And, and here we are, that prophecy has come true 30 years later. Oh, absolutely. And you can you can see in the history of it, the, um, and, you know, the way it came about right early on, and you can see there's, I've reviewed, you know, obviously I have a new vested interest, a newfound interest in this, sure. uh, in this information, <laughs> and uh, I've been reviewing a lot of old C-SPAN videos. And you can see a lot of the old Operation Rescue and pro-life leaders uh, from early on in the 90s, actually in their actual testimony before Congress, talking about the FACE Act. And, you know, the number one thing that stood out to me re-watching those is Randall Terry, who's the founder of Operation yes, Rescue. Yes, remember him. And, uh, and, and maybe at some point we should talk about rescue and what that is, because that's different than what we do today on the streets as far as sidewalk ministry. But the um, but he's, he told... Schumer, which was a, a young congressman back in the videos, which is interesting to see him in such mm-hmm. a, a young young age, and and still being around politics in Washington after all this time. <laughs> of course, life, yeah. lifetime job, right? Right, exactly. But uh, but Randall said that he wanted to ask the committee. Said, "Are you going to make it a felony, a federal offense, for all the animal rights blockade, you know, sit-ins?" For the AIDS activists that are storming the churches and locking out, keeping the priests from service, keeping the congregation from coming in, are you going to make it a felony for all these other groups that have long practiced sit-ins, peaceful protest as a as a mechanism of the First Amendment right for free speech, mm-hmm. right? And he he said that the only reason you're doing this is because our ministry is being effective, and we are actually impacting and saving children's lives. And so he, the, word, the words he said is because we dare touch the right, the sacred right of child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the, the I think I think that's a, that's a good place to start. Before we get into the FACE Act particulars, want, talk to us about what what is it that you do? And, and because that's going to inform us, what was the what was the thing that what was the horrible thing that you were engaged in? Right. That caused this feder, federal indictment to come down upon you. Yeah, you bet. I mean, the horrible thing I did that day specifically was I read the Bible, we sang hymns, and we prayed that babies' lives would be spared. That's the extent of my personal involvement, other than talking with the police officers and helping them ensure everything was orderly and that nobody got hurt and, you know, anything like that, just because of a lot of people in, in a small space and whatever. And you did this where and when? This was Mount Juliet. This would have been March of 21. So March 2021, you yep. prayed outside? Is a multi-purpose building, so we were in the hallway outside the abortion clinic door, but within the broader building. I see. So lots of other businesses and, and things in the in the building there. But there was a group. So the group we were that was there um, that was willing to risk arrest. And so if you if you back up back to the nineties, back to the early days, let me put it this way: the distinction between normal sit-in protests that you see with all these other groups I mentioned a minute ago. And what Operation Rescue and other groups like Rescue America and some other groups were were doing is they said, this is not a civil protest. It's not about our right to free speech. Uh, this is about our duty before God that tells us in Proverbs, if you see someone being led to death, don't, don't stand back, don't hold back, but save them and physically uh, save them from death. And so the movement very much saw this as a means of inter- interposition, uh, just like Christ interposition 
posed himself on the cross for our sins to keep us from the destroyer of our souls, that these Christians would go and sit down at the abortion clinic door and say, if, there's, if it's necessary that for babies to die today, then I'm willing to give up my freedoms to go to jail and to, to identify with them and show them physically the love of Christ, mm-hmm. that they have value, they're human, made in the image of God. And so that was what Operation, Operation Rescue. Operation Rescue was. That's, okay. you know, the 90s up until face. And, you know, which is, is different than what your organization does. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Person in Tennessee, as we've, we've been very successful saving babies from the sidewalks. So standing out on the sidewalks in the, you know, public right away, talking to moms uh, coming in, giving them information. I mean, you know, it's been one of the guys who say people choose abortion like a, a raccoon stuck in a trap chooses to shoe his hand off. Mm-hmm. Abortion is not a choice. It's a, it's a horrible experience. It's horrible to go through. It leaves lifelong scars. And so many people, we find so many women that we found over the years, if they knew they had another choice, mm-hmm. they would more than willing right. to take help and to, to actually have, you know, some support. Heard this story a, a lot. In a very, you know, very challenging life situation. So your organization is different because you're not, what are you doing different than um, Operation Rescue did? Sure. And Operation Rescue did the other things as well, the sidewalk counseling where you're talking to the girls and things. But the thing that was unique prior to FACE was the sit-in at the door. Which you don't do. Which we do not do today. Primarily, the church has not done it since 1994, since the FACE Act went into play. So you've tried to comply with the law. Correct. Notwithstanding the fact that the law was directed, I believe, unconstitutionally and certainly unfairly toward Christians, you still complied with the law. Yeah. And there's two sides of that, Kevin. The, uh, there's one aspect of it that we certainly, we're, we're law-keeping, Christians are law-keepers, right. right? We believe in the rule of law. And I'll make the case later that it's actually uh, the actions the against us today that are not listening to the rule of law and obeying yep. what they, they claim to. But there's that aspect that we are law-keepers. Um, and I forget where I was going with, with it, everything, but the the thing that came about out of the, when the FACE Act was passed, is the cost went from a Class B misdemeanor, so where you get out, you pay your ticket, you spend a night in jail, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, 30 days community service, to a felony. Wow. And so the government named its price— and the church had to reconcile, Wow, is that price worth that baby's mm-hmm. life? And what we saw and what we're reaping the fruit of today is the church said, well, I'll spend a night in jail, but I'm not going to spend six months in jail. Mm-hmm. And, and just to put in perspective, the, the rescue movement of the 90s, 80s and 90s, there were an estimated over 77,000 Christians arrested and taken in jail for these type of activities. So it was not a small movement. As a matter, as a matter of fact, some have said it's the largest civil um, disobedience movement in the history of the nation. Mm. But but to your point on faced with misdemeanor charges, at correct? The time, yeah, know, yeah. One felonies. year it was it was a uh, first offense was a year I think. No, I'm sorry that that was the revised. They, you, yeah. you got two. They got two pieces of face. When it was first passed, it was a misdemeanor, and I, it was three to six months. And but it was a felony, and the and the you know certainly the stakes were raised. Yep. Uh, a year later, they went back and revised face, and that's where you get the the year charge as opposed to a few months. And I, I wanted to hit the point, too. I thought it was interesting before the show, you were saying that, you know, of course, now you're, you know, been indicted, whatever, arrested. But prior to this, and in, in all of your years of experience doing this, you've you've worked with law enforcement on, on several occasions in many different, you know, just... Share those experiences just a little bit. You got multiple pieces of this, right? The clinics always want to call the law enforcement, even though they know the violence being done at abortion clinics was was very was never by the faithful Christians out on the sidewalks. Mm-hmm. There were some extremists that were identified as pro-lifers that did violent acts. That, you know, there were abortionists who were shot and things like that that we absolutely denounced. Always have consistent Christians, right? Aren't, don't do vigilante justice, right? Um, so that was one aspect of it. So you, we always had the opportunity to interact with the police officers and talk with them on scene. And, it, you know, it's an incredible relationships develop over time. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember one particular case with one of our, our leaders in Dallas. 
and uh, where a, a an upset dad had taken a punch at him in the on the sidewalk as he's trying to talk to the guy's girlfriend, and he's cussing at him and hollering. And this particular leader had such a relationship with the local police, and they were there watching. If they saw it, they got out, cuffed the guy, put him in the back of the car, and then they came over to to. This would be Flip Benham, the leader of Operation Rescue, after a while. Um, and he asked him, said, Flip, what do you want to do with him? So, I mean, that was the rapport mm-hmm. you know, they had. So they came to Flip, and Flip said, well, if he'll apologize, let's let him go. I don't want to, you know, he's already had a, he's got a tough right. thing going on here, right? He didn't he want to make it better, make it worse, rather. And the guy came, and they brought, the cop brought him out, you know, said, all right. He said, if you can apologize, you know, you can go home. So he was, he was being all stubborn and wouldn't do it. And then, you know, the cop started taking him back to jail and he broke down and mm-hmm. Flip ended up praying with him and ministering to him and, you know, helped him. So wow. That's awesome. So how long have you been doing, doing this and doing it freely without interruption and with these good relationships with law enforcement prior to, what'd you say, March of 21? Yes. Um, so we, you know, over the course of our life, when we lived in Nashville, I used to work downtown in Green Hills area, and we'd go down to abortion clinic at lunch. A couple of us take a lunch, go down there and pray for an hour, mm-hmm. and just, you know, just pray and just try to be used to God and just identify with what was going on there. A couple of years ago, we started uh, a fresh a sidewalk counseling ministry formally uh, when I got engaged with personhood. Uh, the Personhood Alliance is a national movement, and so that we, we started a state chapter. So that's when we re- kind of restarted a, a full-blown ministry where we'd have teams out there on a regular basis throughout the week on whatever days they were, they, they only scheduled abortions every day, but mm-hmm. when they were, when they were scheduled, we'd have a team out there. So that was a couple of years so prior. So 19, I guess 20, yeah, 2019 or so, I think is when we started that back up Okay, in a, in a formal sense. Mm-hmm. And then would you do this weekly, monthly, how regularly yeah, it just depends. I mean, we're an hour and a half from Nashville, so it's not like we're out there every day. But like I said, we'd, we'd find the schedule when they were killing babies, and we'd, we'd usually have a team there. So we might have a team in the morning, a team in the afternoon on Tuesday, team in the afternoon on Thursday. just depends on what was going on. And so it's a concerted effort to, to be there when you could be effective. And so our audience knows, you weren't there breaking glass or setting fires or starting fights, were you? It was not mostly peaceful. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in the, the, the newspeak, right? And uh, no, absolutely, it's completely nonviolent. You can't, you can't help Just women. <laughs> you can't help women if you're if they're intimidated by you, right? They're in a crisis situation. You're not going to go out there and scream and yell and and try to intimidate somebody. Just, and you're certainly not going to physically harm things. As an aside, isn't that the was was that reference to wasn't there like an image from CNN they were talking about this peaceful protest and everything's on blowing fire up and behind fire him. behind them yeah, <laughs> yeah mostly peaceful yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what I said about this this arrest out Mount Juliet I said the real problem is we had Bibles and not bricks if we'd mm. had bricks it would have left us alone but wow. even then you weren't throwing your Bible if someone either, right? would have this is true if someone <laughs> would have mysteriously dropped off a pallet of bricks on the corner everything would have been okay yeah you know you probably would have come out and they had built a like a rain shelter or something for people to have shelter in. <laughs> That's, exactly. that's the the caliber of people that were right. there. So we so we get a picture of kind of what you're doing right now. Let's get into the particulars of the FACE Act. So, you know, this thing gets signed into law by Bill Clinton in 1994. What was the, because there was these sit-ins, going, what was the real point of the FACE Act at the time? So I, I want to juxtapose, you know, what's the point of the FACE Act versus what this newly weaponized FBI agency now under the Biden DOJ is doing with it now that I think is is kind of a new thing. Yeah, and and there's certainly a new push post-Roe, and they've said it. You can go through every person at the Justice Department, from Kristen Clark to Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, uh, all the way down, Gupta, as the, you know, one of the members, every one of them made statements about we're, you know, prosecuting abortion cases with the FACE Act is a priority since Roe has fallen. So this has mm-hmm. to do with Roe. So in your mind, this is retaliation? It's it's the only hammer they have left in the bag, right? So Roe has been overturned. And so the only thing they have to make the case is, oh, but this is a federal law. Now, FACE actually allows for abortion. Let's see, you can go through all the testimony I was talking about on C-SPAN and all the original language, and it was predicated on Roe. 
So when Roe fell, there's no longer a civil right to abortion, and therefore there is no civil right being I'm, infringed. I'm catching what you're saying right, now. Right, by the, by the FACE Act. They're, they're, they're saying by virtue of the fact that the FACE Act protects a woman's right to access an abortion clinic, then clearly jurisprudence from that would imply that there is that abortion is federally legal. And that's that's kind of what they're trying to play now, post road. Right. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So meaning that wow. even in a state that is protecting the right to kill your children, this still doesn't apply because this clearly only applied to right federal right. the quote unquote federal right to kill your child. Right. And now since there's no longer a federal right to kill your child, doesn't matter even if you were in a blue state, they couldn't proceed under the FACE Act, That's right? A Tenth Amendment right. violation. Right. Pretty clearly. Yeah, and and then their mindset to understand their ideology and where they're at, right? And I'd love to get into that a little bit about the ideology and the changing of the words and redefining the mm -hmm. language and what that means to us as Christians. But they're so bold as to say they're monitoring the state legislatures. They're looking for infringements at the state level, not even some little poor, you know, mm -hmm. country boy out on the sidewalk with his Bible. They're looking for, you know, going after governors and going after the state. And we've already seen them suing police departments and all kinds of other things unrelated to pro-life work, but where they're, they're bringing their civil rights hat and trying to—, to uh, prosecute civil rights cases that are outside federal jurisdiction. So <clears throat> is your case, your case that's proceeding now, It was it brought against you after, what was that, June of 22, right? That's when... When Roe was overturned. Yeah, because your, your act, the act that they're basing it on, that they think violated the FACE Act, they didn't pursue until June, but are they claiming that at the time you were in front of the venue that it happened while there still was quote unquote this. Yeah, I think the timeline is important. Yeah. So well the timeline is very important because they came for us. They knocked they showed up at my door. Actually it's the indictment was exactly a hundred days post row. And so they they went in, they said, All right, what are we gonna do? So the, the hang on, the incident in question happened in March of twenty one. Correct. And Roe Ro was overturned June of twenty two. And then 100 right. days after that. Yep, October. So we're a year and a year and a half or more yeah. past the incident? Yeah, we're, it was October 22. Well, the incident was 21. Right. So we, were, we weren't even arrested uh, for 18 months. And then now we've been since October through wow. January is the date. So we're 14 months of, you know, fair and speedy trial. Uh, mm -hmm. Ahead of us here. Yeah, that timeline is huge. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a big deal. But is that their position that because where are we in the process? Is is that their argument that because you're um, the day that you were in front of the abortion clinic, praying and and offering materials and answering questions, happened before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and therefore it still applied, or have they not made that argument? So the people that were arrested on site that day, before they left the site, before the police cars rolled out with them from that event that day, the FBI agent in charge was in the abortion clinic office taking notes and taking testimony. So literally within 20 minutes from the arrest, he was already on site and, and getting information from the clinic. Wow. All right. So, okay, so that, that's a great picture there. Tell us what happened when you were arrested. And of course, that that's right. been in the news. And but, but sure. I, there's a lot of our audience. I'm sure hasn't heard right. the story. Yeah, and and to be clear, on the day of, just to I make that clear because we've talked about different times and different events. Um, I was in the hallway. We were singing hymns, reading the Bible. I was not participating in the rescue activity uh, for the ones mm -hmm. that were, but I was basically became an intermediary with the police officers, the lead negotiator, talking with them about their civil duties as police officers before, you know, God created the civil magistrate. Right. They have duties and obligations just like we do as citizens, but mm -hmm. theirs are different. And um, so, you know, great relationship with with the police officers on site. The people got arrested locally, went to the you know county court. They did their thing. It ultimately right. got dropped. And um, so we're, you know, cruising along. Life is as, as normal, uh, taking kids to school that particular 
ball morning last October and um, sent a couple of kids out to the car and there's the banging on the door. Open up, FBI. And, and But it didn't stop. It wasn't a polite knock. It was just a continuous banging, right? It's the psychological warfare right. and that they inflict on you trying to get you to be fearful and intimidated. Mm-hmm. So I went to the door, pulled back the curtain, saw three agents and... One of them had a, you know, a short arm. His his sidearm was trained on me. The other one was at a low ready with his long gun sitting in my front door. And I said, you know, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for you. And uh, and so, I, you know, all this is going through my mind. And um, I know I got three kids outside. I got other ones in the house, one, some upstairs. And I'm trying to decide what's going on. I ask whose authority. And uh, it was the only thing I could think to ask, you know, at the at the moment, right. and um, trying to buy some time and figure out what what this was about. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, the guy, you know, I at at the same time I was asking that, I opened the door to surrender myself. I figured if that's if they're looking for me, like he said, then me in handcuffs is a great way to de-escalate this and keep everybody safe. And we'll we'll find lawyers and we'll go fight this. We'll right. figure it, we'll figure it out, right? Uh, so as I'm walking out, I'm asking about the authority and the. The guy putting the cuffs on me points to his Velcro FBI badge. Says, "This is all the all the information you get." You know, kind of. Thing. Wait, his so, he points to his badge and he his, says, "His badge is all the information yeah, you get." Yeah. Did his, he have a warrant? So, not that they showed uh, at the time. They didn't tell my wife, my children, or our sheriff, our governor, any of my representatives. So no advance no warning. One knew just. You know, I would have gladly gone it, right? This is not, this is nothing more than fear tactics and wanting it's to scare the, the populace. It's all about the optics, isn't it? It's, it's all about fear and intimidation and yeah. about their ideology that they're pushing down our throats. But the, the reality is um, nobody in our state knew where I was for six hours. I was literally kidnapped off my front porch by four guys with guns that have Velcro FBI labels on their mm-hmm. chest. And that was it. So once I was in the car, the officer there arresting me, I did ask again. He pulled up a laptop. He showed me the warrant. Of course, I had no glasses, no wallet. They wouldn't let me take anything. So I'm, I could see face on there. And that's all I saw. And I'm like, okay, well, it's pro-life related. We'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. So. And again, so our audience knows, this didn't happen in New York City or Chicago or even downtown Nashville. This was in Mount Juliet, right? Well, I, live in Hick- I was in Hickman County. So I live in Hickman County, hour and 15 minutes out of Nashville, rural, yeah. rural country town. They rolled in there heavy. Made a big scene on my front porch, scared all my children, left my wife and children crying for, you know, six hours, frantically trying to call around and figure out what happened to me, and then dumped me on the streets of Nashville with no phone, no wallet, you know. And when I grew up, by the way, and I know this is becoming more of a common tactic, right? They've especially been doing this hard since the beginning of the Biden administration, but we saw this going back to Obama, and that's really when the government was weaponized against us, IRS, CIA, FBI. But when I grew up, this is the type of thing that we heard about only happening in communist China or communist Soviet Union at that point, right? We never, we would laugh it off and, or say, it's a shame that it's happening in other parts of the world. This is happening right in the United States of America. And, mm-hmm. and regarding the point about the weaponization of the FBI, I think it's important. The fact that no one, you said state representatives, sheriff, local authorities, I mean, this harkens to... Um, you may know of, of a, a recent occurrence. Well, it happened in Utah, you know, last month. And yep. then just a few days later, or a week later, it happened in Tennessee in Chester County. You had a disabled veteran. FBI comes knocking. Uh, he's unarmed, apparently. We don't know the full story yet. But next thing you know, the guy's dead, shot dead in his house. And the the key point there, what what's what tends to be a similar thread running through all of these stories is that the FBI comes in, this federal police authority, and no one locally knows about it. The sheriff's not notified. Municipal authorities aren't notified. No one knows this is happening. And so you've got a federal agency now that is, you know, in in their mind using, well, I'm I'm picturing now this guy pointing to his chest. You know, this is the attitude, right? Completely penetrating any and all sense of state sovereignty, local authority. And I'll just, I'll just, you know, we don't have to rabbit trail here, but I don't know of anywhere in the Constitution that gives the federal government any kind of police power whatsoever. In fact, courts have opined on almost every occasion 
that the only reason states can infer a police power, because that, that power is not enumerated either. But right. states infer their police power from the Tenth Amendment by virtue of the fact that the Constitution has not enumerated that power to the federal government. So my question has always been regarding the FBI, if states get police power simply through the Tenth Amendment because the Constitution has not given it to the federal government, then how in the world do we have the FBI? <laughs> how, is, <laughs> how is this happening? Yep. And and just like COVID, we we seem to all just go along with arbitrary power is the no, problem. No, absolutely. And it's and listen, people don't understand. We are in an armed conflict. We are unarmed combatants, and they are armed, fully armed, fully weaponized, fully authorized to use deadly force. Who's going to police them? Henderson Henderson County. Who's policing them? The guy was killed. Oh, they're doing their internal investigation. That's an issue. So what can we do, right? There, there's and there's multiple aspects to this this battle and this this issue that we're facing. There's a spiritual aspect that I believe sits squarely at the door of the church, and the Come church on, say it right. The church has a duty and an obligation to be informed, to be engaged, to understand what they're supposed to be. And if the if the church was salt and light, guess what? There wouldn't be so much darkness mm-hmm. surrounding us. So we we have to own it as Christians first and foremost. Then once we do that, there are political things we can do and we should do. So what can we do in the state of Tennessee right now to stop the FBI from coming into Tennessee across our borders, from being housed in our state, for, for starters? Let's yep. start there. Can we not have a TBI, a Tennessee-controlled task force or group law agency that reviews any federal indictments? You certainly can. Right. Could we not do that? Can we not say, well, if you want someone arrested, the local sheriff will pick them up and bring them to you? And, right. If, and, and that way you have you have some kind of review of this process. You got some kind of check and a balance to keep things like this from getting out of hand and out of control. So there's one there's two silos that I see that in. One is actually crafting, whether it's legislation or even by executive order, uh, a plan to do that. But then we know the federal government's going to ignore it anyway and still show up at your doorstep and, you know, show all their power. So so what's the teeth? Yeah. So what comes after that? Which leads to my question. After you were arrested in October of 2022, so almost a year ago, even though we know that the sheriff, police departments, governors were not notified, have they made a stink about it on your behalf? Have they notified the? Because I didn't hear about this story until Gary told me earlier this week that we were going to have you as a guest. So it didn't appear in my newsfeed, or if it did, it went and went away. And even when I Googled it, I found three or four stories. But it, I don't remember. I could be wrong. I don't remember hearing our legislature. I don't remember hearing our governor say anything about, whoa, 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 FBI, this is our sovereign jurisdiction. What are you doing coming into the state of Tennessee and arresting one of our citizens? Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. Listen, I went part of my release— so we can talk about the pre-trial, det- pre-trial detention services, the PTSD department uh, <laughs> that we are. So, Appropriate acronym, right? So the, the process is the punishment, right? I, I mean, at the end of the day, if you get past the ideology that's making up new words and finding new reasons to, to persecute people, and you get into a court between a judge that actually can define a woman and define violence and define actual words that mean something by law, this is... Right, we got a, a great case. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no reason this should go anywhere. It, it shouldn't even been brought, obviously, but it is here, and we're dealing with it. I got out, went back the next day to do with my pretrial. So they want to make sure there's no weapons in my home. They want to inspect my home. They want to walk through my house and video my book catalogs, every everything mm-hmm. about my house. Again, like, my, to your question earlier on whose authority? Yeah, no, because I have an option. I can go to jail until trial. Or I can be out on my own recognizance, and you obey these rules. So they wanted to videotape your library. Well, right? the house, to, right, which would include yeah. where my children sleep, what books I read, what the layout, what pictures I have on my wall, right? Everything about me personally uh, is an, an absolute invasion of privacy. Because, of course, they're not, Gary, they're not going to do anything with that information. Yeah, that's for your security. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. It's for his own good. Well, and so, you know, in trying to be as gracious as I can, if you got federal felons that have been in jail and they murdered someone and they're out on parole or, well, 
set that one aside. They did some felony and it was worthy of getting back out of jail for. Mm -hmm. Then you are transitioning to society. This is the, the parole office. And so their mentality and their setup is for that purpose. But the thing is, in the process is the punishment piece. They said, hey, what if we just do this first? Right. And so now you're doing all these punishments mm-hmm. basically for your right to prove yourself innocent. Right. Right. So, so that's the big picture. But my point to your question and after the rabbit trail there is that, so I left the parole office after, which is just down the street from the Capitol. So I went to the Capitol. I knocked on every door, went to everybody I could see, said, hey, you want a fun experiment? There's only one social experiment more fun than getting turned out on the streets in Nashville and not having a phone and asking strangers to borrow their phone. That's a great Christian experiment. I <laughs> recommend you try that. The only thing greater than that was walking into the representative's office and saying, hey, my, my name's Paul Vaughn. I was just arrested by the FBI and and watch their face as you, as you try to, why are you here and what is it you want? Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I question why is that? And they're suspect to the same tyranny, right? They can go arrest state yep. legislators and everybody else as well. So short of it is I didn't get an audience and I've tried. I got a handful of my representatives, great. Uh, Jody Barrett is wonderful. And uh, anyway, he's, he's good for us. The uh, But everybody else just was crickets. So, you know, this, this might be a... Um if I were governor moment. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm just thinking right now, of course, the governor has no executive authority, nor should he over a sheriff's department. But but if I were governor, I, I would right now be calling a, a, a conference, a meeting of all sheriff departments in the state. And my push, my and I would be bringing in everybody. I would, uh, what is it? Uh, Sheriff Mack that runs the mm-hmm. Constitutional Sheriffs of America mm-hmm. organization. Yep. I would be bringing in everyone that I possibly could to educate our sheriffs on their constitutional authority to the word you use, which is a great word earlier, to interpose themselves. I mean, the, your local sheriff constitutionally is the interposition between the citizen and the federal yep. government. It's the job title. They, yeah, they're the highest authority in that county. And I would challenge each of those sheriff departments, look, whenever the federal government comes in and usurps our own state policing power um, at the abrogation of the rights of our own citizens, guess what? You arrest them and you put those suckers in jail. Yep. Every one of them. Yep. So what I want to know is why, why is the FBI, why are those agents not in jail right now in your local sheriff's department? That's absolutely the question. And the uh, two thoughts on that. Sheriff Mack did come to town. At least his organization did. There was a Tennessee Sheriff's Association meeting association meeting uh, that talked about these things. It was not well advertised, I don't think. I don't think the attendance should have been, <clears throat> and it should have been 95 sheriffs, you know, in that meeting. And I think there was 20 or 30, which is, I'm grateful for. That's awesome. Um, but that is definitely, the sheriffs have the ability uh, to do that. And they can, there are certain things we assumed, I always assumed constitutionally that this couldn't happen without the sheriff's permission. But as it turns out, the way the law has been turned around on its head is there are things the sheriff's half, half, the sheriff department has to do to notify the federal agencies of exercising his right over that area, apparently. And I'm not a, I don't, haven't gone deep on that at all. That's just what little knowledge I have from knowing that meeting. Uh, took place. And that's what that meeting was about, is educating the sheriffs on what you can do today. Now, does it mean they wouldn't do it? I doubt it. But apparently there's some things at law that would, you know, give pause and and a a recourse as well. But but step one, at least to that point, would be making sure that every sheriff's department in every county has issued that notice. Yep. Yep. And I think there's, there's an obvious thing that we as citizens need to educate ourselves on as well. We need First, we need to recognize the times that we're living in. It, it's always been, well, those are those people, right? I mean, we had precursors to this, you know, when in, in the realm of conspiracy theories becoming truth, you know, theories. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> you, you, know, you know that riddle, that riddle, right? What's the difference between a conspiracy, conspiracy theory and the truth? Yeah, just a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. It used to be six months, and now it's just a couple yeah, of weeks. Things are contracting, yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. You got the Branch Davidians in Waco. There was very little outcry. The government killed 83, uh, you know, Branch Davidians saying they're 
you know, their right. cults or whatever. Then you got Ruby Ridge and you got other little small instants. Right. They're always, oh, well, they're just on the fringe. But here's the thing is what we're seeing is a contracting of the bell curve. Mm-hmm. Right. So you got a bell curve where normal society lives and you got people with Christian faith out here on the edge somewhere and radical uh, leftists over here on this edge. And we got this push to the middle. So they're, they're cutting off the ends. So what used to be radical, what used to be normal is now becoming radical. So Latin mass Catholics, right, used to be fairly central. They were in the middle of the bell curve. They were safe. And now all of a sudden with this FBI and this age that we're in, now mm-hmm. all of a sudden they're out here on the bell curve and they're radical and we got to go investigate them. What, what you're going through, what, what pains me right now, and, may, and maybe, look, maybe we can encourage someone to step up. I don't know. Maybe this is great, a great opportunity for a little advocacy work. But what pains me is the thought that your trial would even happen in January because this is such a great opportunity to assert states' rights for for the state, because we're we're not just fighting the FBI. I, I'm trying to make a larger point here. We we are fighting, and I and yeah, I relent to that point. Ultimately, we're fighting a battle between good and evil. But we we are fighting right now an agenda on so many levels that is abs- that is working to dismantle. Not only the sovereignty of the individual, not only the sovereignty of the state, but the sovereignty of our own country. You know, there are folks around the world that don't even believe we're supposed to have borders. So we're we're at war with all of these factions. And this one case is such a great opportunity to at least push back on a piece of that by agents of the state, whether it's the governor himself, whether it's the TBI, whether it's sheriffs. That would right now, in their position, stand up for you publicly, let the federal government know that as far as we're concerned in Tennessee, there is no trial. And if you step foot, if you step your foot in Hickman County to to address a man named Paul Vaughn, we will arrest you and put you in jail. You, that should That right now should be the only statement being made by Tennessee authorities. And it's that some people, Gary, would say, well, then what's that going to lead to? Right. But that's the point. When have we ever we are at the moment in time where we have to force that issue. That discussion has to happen. That that event has to happen. We can't have sheriffs and our own state, anybody who has jurisdiction within this state, be afraid because this is what the FBI does. This is what the federal government has done for years. Keep pushing beyond the the bounds of the law yeah. with the hope that people say, well, geez, I don't want to. Yeah, I know they're stretching the bounds of the law, but I don't want to be the guy who stops them. No, this is why they've gotten to where they are. We need someone to stand up and to make an issue of this. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that is a key point is, you know, the old Nazi story, right? They came for... One yes. group, and I wasn't that group, so I didn't, you know, and just you go on, and then they came for me, and nobody was left. And that's right. that is the, you know, if you read Solzhenitsyn, the Gulag Archipelago, read, uh, you know, even Rodger's Live Not by Lies brought out yep. so many yep. second source material. I went and bought before all this happened. This is kind of how God sovereignly prepares, prepares you, you for things, right? And so I'm studying Kirchmary and Binda and uh, Father Calcio and all these different, you know, Orthodox and Catholic priests that were over there in Europe during communism Mm -hmm. and watching and seeing what happened. And this is what every one of them say without, without missing a beat is it it is the frog in the pot, right? They do one infraction, infraction, they do a smaller one, they do this, they step it up. And, and we're at the place now where we're still in denial and they've already gone full, full blown. They that we got this, we can do what we want. Nobody's going to do anything. And here's the challenge. We, we, you know, obviously very limited as our as the populace when one person and four armed guys show up, or in Mark Houck's case up in Pennsylvania with like 21 mm-hmm. armed agents and state troopers and everything else at his door in front of his kids. Wh- what are you going to do? You're going to surrender yourself and go to court and fight it. And ultimately, I think there'll be a victory in the courts. But what we're missing is they've already had victory in the media. Yes. Mm-hmm. They've already had victory in the public yep. sphere. They've already drug my name through the mud and put me through a year and a half of pretrial, you know, detention and, you know, whatever uh, that comes about. And so the challenge, so you need state leaders, you need people with authority, with guns 
right? And I don't mean going and shooting the guns, yep. but you got to have the actual power, something with the teeth, as you said earlier, to actually enforce what you're going to say. And that needs to be at the state level. But here's the challenge, and this is what, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to this piece. But as soon as you step into that, that arena as a governor or as a legislature, you better be ready to have your finances in order. Because go look at how much federal money flows into our pockets in Tennessee, not just at the state level, but how many people— 40% of the budget. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, we have a big ding for that because Gary talks about that all the time yep, on this podcast. 40% of the budget. Yep. Yep. And then think about how that flows down to how many people in that shell station when you get gas this afternoon actually have a salary from that money, either through the state or through an organization that gets federal money or through some other thing, right? Not even just the state budget, but think about all the organizations that are then sponsored and funded by other grants and things from the federal government. So there's that's, that's our challenge is we've been bought and we don't know how to redeem ourselves. Yes, we've been bought. The you know the root of all this is I'm just thinking on all this, and honestly, as we're having this discussion, getting a little frustrated by it <laughs> because I can relate to that. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you can much more much more than myself. You know, I've said this a lot as I've been out speaking in various places, but I've not not talked about this, about this uh, in particular constitutional um, provision on the show very much, but it's it's one of the reasons it was it's basically the foundation of why we started Tennessee stands and it's article one section two of our state constitution, which simply states this that the doctrine of non-resistance to arbitrary power is absurd, slavish, and destructive of the good and happiness of mankind. Mm. In other words, our state constitution, number one, gives every Tennessean a constitutionally prescribed duty to resist arbitrary power. Mm-hmm. Our constitution is telling us when you see arbitrary power, you must resist because if you don't, it will destroy you. But it also goes further to say that the doctrine of non-resistance is absurd. In other words, you're crazy if you just sit by and allow government forces to arbitrarily ap- apply powers of which you can find no lawful basis that they have and just go along with it to get along, you are crazy and you will lose and they will steal everything from you. And so we have a constitutional mandate to resist. And so, you know, that was my mantra through COVID. It's my mantra now. And it's, it is. In this particular instance, it's not only the resistance of the people, but there are times, again, where where a state government must interpose itself and practice non-resistance. Yep. Um, or practice resistance, I should say, right. uh, against a federal government intent on abrogating the rights of its citizens. And so, there is a, in my view, there is a challenge right now. Before our legislature, before our governor, before our sheriffs, and I would just submit that this I, I believe even at this level, this is a test we ought not fail. It, it is we are putting ourselves in an incredibly dangerous position the more and more times we are tested, that they test our resolve and we fail. Yep. And, and Gary, may I accompany? the constitutional mandate with the biblical mandate. Because as we've also talked on this program, you know, you always hear the uninformed, and I would say a Christian of shallow wit who says, but Romans 13, right? Well, I've got a couple of responses for that that I think warrant revisiting. Number one is when someone says Romans 13, you need to say Acts 4 and 5, right? In Acts 4, we have uh, Peter and John who are accosted and demanded that they stop preaching the gospel. And the first thing they say is, are we to obey you rather than God, right? For us, we're going to obey, O God, you be the judge. Then in Acts 5, Peter's approached again. They said, I thought we told you to stop proclaiming the gospel. And he says very directly, we must obey God rather than men. So, if all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, as the Scriptures say, 
then Romans 13 must be interpreted in light of Acts 4 and 5, which clearly tells us, when you combine the fact, by the way, that Paul himself, the writer of Romans 13, was persecuted, beheaded because he refused to obey the state, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was crucified, which was a political punishment because he refused to capitulate to who's the authority, right? right? He had the ultimate authority. It is very clear. Let me add one more bit to it, too. In America, we do not have a king. Now, I know the government has fallen to a point where people believe it is a king, but our our documents, our Constitution, our Declaration make very clear that it is the people who are the governing authorities. So when any governing authority usurps its bounds, they're not only violating the Constitution, but any Christian who claims, who who usurps his power, is actually violating the biblical concept by actually going against the authority of the government, going against the, the governing authorities who are the citizens themselves. So both constitutionally and biblically, we need to get this right, and the, the people need to understand it and to, and to meet this challenge from a state and constitutional perspective, and the church needs to meet this challenge from a fully informed biblical perspective. I couldn't agree more, and I, w- I will take it. I'll take both those together and say, I, I said earlier, one of the problems is the American church, right? When you just call it personal peace and influence, that is our gospel message, uh-huh. right? We, we are— Get along as long as you can have your bass boat. As long and nothing wrong with bass boats, right? I'll just point out the apostles went, you know, fishing when they were backslidden, but that's okay. We'll, we'll leave that there on the table. <laughs> but uh, no, it's an old old joke I enjoyed. But listen, the the theology here's. I was talking about the ideology of the left earlier, and it's communistic. It is the it's the same play they've done. They redefine the language. They twist the language to fit their belief system instead of allowing the language to be what it is. And the reason that that is so vital to understand is you either have a, you know, people talk about Christian nationalism and everybody's upset or should, well, what do you mean we all got to go to church or this or that? So look, it's, it's not even that at that level, right? God created heaven and earth. He created each one of us. We are made in his image. You either have that as a foundation or you came out of pond scum and ooze and you developed yourself, and therefore you don't have any founding belief system. So we have to get to an understanding and a theology that under that we understand the world and how it works. It's not just the personal salvation gospel, mm-hmm. and that, that we read Acts like, oh, they were just preaching. They were just preaching Matthew. You know, they were just preaching the gospel, trying to get people saved. No, they, they were saying, you know, Rome was polytheistic, right? Everybody was yeah. God, tons of gods. The issue was they were saying Jesus Christ is Lord. He's curious, and not only that. They always started with the Old Testament, right? Yeah. They rooted their entire gospel in the—and when they're speaking to the people, they're saying, the God that you crucified—Jesus, whom you crucified, is the right. God who created the world. And they go yeah. back to the Old Testament, to the Law and the Prophets, leading up to and concluding with Jesus. So that's the—I get excited when you talk about these things, right. so sorry yeah. for interrupting. But that's—it's well, holistic, right? It's We're not just talking about New Testament— um, in incomplete knowledge of the New Testament, right. right? We're talking about, no, this is the God, the one and only true God who created the heavens and the earth. Yeah. yeah there's, well, there's nothing new under the sun, right? We've tried this. We've seen the fruit of communism, socialism, tyranny, right? All We, we have the, the data is there. Mm-hmm. So this is not new. So you either have a biblical worldview of creation or you have an atheistic worldview, and we've seen the fruit of that in the bloodiest century in the history of man. But to your point about resisting and the duty and obligation, right, is we have to get to a place where we understand— The moral obligation. The moral obligation, right, to actually stand not for our rights, but because the idolatry that is being foisted upon the God that created our our civilization, mm-hmm. right? And so we have to address it at a level and understand it's not about me and my rights, my choice, right? That's what the pro board say. It's about not my will, Lord, but thy will be done— and here's, here's where I think the strength and the power can be, and I think this is what we see historically as we look, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 13th century, uh, you know, history in, in Eastern Bloc countries and communism, we see this consistently, is that as the church understands this, how do you engage? Do you go out in this militaristic thing, right? At some point, 
there's wars and, and all these things happen, right? But today for Christians today, what can you do? And that's why I think Dreyer's, Dreyer's book is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. You just don't live by lies mm-hmm. and you suffer the consequences. So if you have a vaccine mandate and you're, you understand the moral con- construct of the human body and what you're doing and what God created and what they're asking when they're mm-hmm. asking you to do this, it's not about the, the soft ideology of, oh, you got to help your neighbor. Oh, you get, don't, no, no, you don't want to go out there and hurt people. Right? It's not about their nonsense. It's about the very fact that God created me. Mm-hmm. I have bodily autonomy, not because I want it, because I'm made in the image of God, and you can't force me to take something else. So you peacefully, nonviolently, boldly say, no thanks, I'm not taking this vaccine. And then you suffer the consequences. You fight it every step you can. And then ultimately, as, as the... Um, and the scripture talks about the vial being full of God's wrath right. against nations and against evil rulers. Our suffering becomes the the stuff that you know martyrs are made of that fills up the vial of God's judgment, and ultimately that is what transitions. So you not only have the materialistic victory of now we got a nation with good laws and decent acting people, but you also have the spiritual victory of the rulers over nations being cast down mm-hmm. and in the, in the spirit realm as well. So there's, there's a dualistic piece to this and we become so materialistic that we completely forget about the powers and principalities and powers and religion, high places aspect yeah. as the church. Yeah. I would, I would say that the church in acts mindfully and willfully operated under a different authority. And, and that fact, that root is what what the church today does not have. Yeah. We we yeah. we have mindfully and willfully chosen to operate under an unlawful authority. And isn't it ironic that some of the most vigorous arguments against civil disobedience that we hear from the church they quote Acts all the time. I'm like, have you read Acts? <laughs> right. That's not that yeah, the the church right. was under persecution and they were they gave us such a clear and plain way forward. Yeah, I, if we read Acts and operate the way the church in Acts did, so many of our civil problems would be resolved. Yeah. Paul, as, uh, as we close, uh, wanna, you know, you, so you're coming up, January is a trial. You've got an organization that's uh, representing you. I want to I give you an opportunity to tell our audience about that and make that, make that plea. You bet. Yeah. Thomas More Society has been great uh, representing us. They also represented recently uh, Lauren Handy in the D.C. case that just uh, completed and, uh, you know, completely different case, not related at all. Mm-hmm. But we see the same tyrannical things with the way the, the court went down there and the judgments there. Those there are, There's a prayer opportunity there for the church. There are eight people in jail in Alexandria, Virginia, in federal detention, waiting sentencing because they were found that they broke face with violence. Now, the violence, anyway, I can go on a long rabbit trail sure. here, but I'll be, I'll be quick as we wrap up. But the clinic workers were pushing them and beating them with a broom, poking them in the stomach and actually abusing them as they sat quietly in chairs and, and stood in the hallways. And one of them twisted their ankle. So because this clinic worker that was actually committing acts of violence against pro-lifers Twisted their ankle twisted while their committing ankle. acts of violence. Yes, yeah, yeah. and, and it's, so the respo- the, so it's the response. It's the fault of the people who are sitting right. there peacefully. Exactly. So Jeez. you get you get how they work. Um, but anyway, so Thomas More Society came into being out of the Face Act. I think Joe Scheidler in Chicago back in the nineties was one of the very first Face and Rico cases. I, I I didn't know that. So that organization actually came out of the Face Act. So as oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So great to go visit their website, thomasmoresociety.org, I believe, but you can find it if you Google them. And uh, we just got a great team of lawyers there doing, doing incredible work. A lot work. of religious liberty work, constitutional work. It's yep. a, it's a yep. group we appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Paul, thanks for being on the show. Um, you know, thanks for um, being willing to be arrested. Sure. <laughs> thanks, yeah. thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for being willing to stand on principle and, and walk the walk. Uh, we're for you. We're with you. We're praying praying alongside. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully, you know, I... I was frustrated earlier. Now I'm motivated you know, <laughs> to see if we can use this as an opportunity to to do something a little bit bigger here because we need to. We have a we have a mandate to do so. Mm-hmm. You bet. No, I've I've gone through the full range of those emotions as well. Yeah. We are. And I'd I'm just con- to- I'm just condensing them into fifty <laughs> right. minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mine keep going day and day. Yeah. Um, 
I would encourage people to pray for the trial coming up in January. It's going to be at 7th and Church downtown, brand new Trump building down there. It's the new courthouse, federal courthouse. Um, we're going down on Saturdays and having prayer meetings once a month just to mm-hmm. kind of pray that God would be glorified and that he yep. would lead us and guide us. Uh, and you can follow me at Substack, paultn.substack.com. I'm, okay. I'm Paul writing— T- Say that again. Paultn, like Tennessee, uh, .substack.com. And so writing and just keeping thoughts out about the case and just right. trying to encourage people, Great, yeah. right? So Appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, guys. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit tennesseestands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it.